Well, good morning. Um, I debated several different ways of going to teach through this material, through this passage. Um, and, and one of the questions really was, do I integrate this faithful next step project into the Nehemiah passage, um, the passage that has spoken to me in all of this? Like, do I try to, to present it like, here's what Nehemiah says, and here's what we're doing? And, and there were some problems with that. One, it felt forced. First, it felt forced when I started looking at it. And then, of course, once it's forced, it begins to feel cheesy, and that's not good. Um, but worst of all, it, to me, it began to feel inauthentic, uh, because I, I, I felt like I would be creating, if I did that kind of revisionist history, it would feel like I'm saying, hey, this is how God's Word inspired every step of all of this. And the truth is, the inspiration went both directions. Sometimes, as you'll see, it's the issues that we're facing that then, that then begins to inspire the way I'm seeing uh, God's Word, and sometimes it's the other direction. And so um, I didn't want to create that. To teach it retroactively would, would give an impression that's not, I don't think would be right. And so we rejected that, and instead I want to work my way to the main section um, that really grabbed my imagination and then be able to tell the story chronologically, at least from my perspective. Um, I do this with humility. I've realized recently that in things like this, I don't like things like capital campaigns, um, primarily because to me they feel presumptuous. Um, and I'm not saying they are presumptuous, but they feel that way to me um, all the time. Like, I'm, like we're saying, here is what God wants us to do next. And that already, that's hard for me. That would be tough enough. But we, it feels to me like we're saying, here's what God is going to do next. And that I don't feel okay with. That's not, that's not okay. He's God, not us. And so instead, I want to inspire us to enter into this process, um, being involved in what God may be doing, what God is, whatever God is going to be doing next, which it's His, not ours, in the same way that three of the kind of heroes of the faith um, did that I, I want to look at. And the first one is Peter. In Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 8, we get this account. Uh, this is when Jesus has just performed a miraculous catch of fish. Peter sees this catch of fish, realizes um, what it means, and he responds in a way that is not, obviously not at all prideful. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished by the catch of fish they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Not be afraid, from now on you will be catching uh, men." And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You get the clear sense that Peter spends the next years of his life shocked that Jesus chose him. Shocked. What could he possibly be thinking that he would choose me? Paul references this a lot. The Apostle Paul references this idea a lot. That, that God had no business choosing him, that it must have been some kind of huge mix-up or some kind of mistake that God would choose someone like Paul. Maybe... And most vividly, he describes this in 1 Corinthians 15. Last of all, uh, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. We see, we see all through um, Paul's writings um, how often he is blown away, shocked, impressed, just stunned um, by the fact that God would choose him of all people. But maybe my favorite example um, was revealed to me by um, Pike Weisner. Um, 
the pastor of First Baptist Church, when he was teaching through this and almost casually pointed this out, and it just grabbed my heart and led me to tears and moved me. And this in, in Matthew chapter 10, we get the listing of the apostles here in Matthew chapter 10. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. What's mind-boggling about this is that this is Matthew writing. Matthew is the one writing, and 30 years, 40 years after Jesus has chosen him, Matthew describes himself in verse 3 as Matthew the tax collector. I think Matthew has spent decades now of his life shocked that God would choose him. What were you thinking to choose a tax collector? He goes to this list. I don't think this is his identifying with being a tax collector anymore. He's now, a, he's now an apostle of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And yet I think in this moment, as he's listing this, and once again he is struck with this truth, God, Jesus chose me, the tax collector. Who would do that? And the answer is, under normal circumstances, nobody. But it's wild to me that Matthew lists himself in this way. God, thank you for choosing us. Um, it's not our wills, but yours that should be done. If he's calling us, if you're calling us to do this thing, Lord, then we're honored to do it, whatever it is. If you want to add another 800 or more souls a week to hear, to respond, to disciple, to live on in mission here, fine. We'd love to do that. We'll listen. So what about the Nehemiah thing? I was inspired by the prayer we looked at last week. Um, where we focused all of our attention last week. If you weren't here last week or haven't listened to it, I encourage you to do so. We talked about prayer a lot. We talked about faith. We talked about even the concept of a pledge, what a pledge is, and how that fits into that. So if you've not seen that, I hope you'll go back and, and check that out. Um, I was inspired by that prayer, Nehemiah's humility, the confession of his sin, and his heart for getting to work. Um, I was studying it with a group of younger men while we were in the earliest phases of the conversation about the campaign. And we got to chapter 3. And, and chapter 3 has captured me in a way that it never has before, I think because we were in the midst of these conversations. Um, um, and I, don't, I, don't, I want to craft this whole story in a way that allows, it, allows you to appreciate this passage the best to appreciate this passage the most, and maybe even be able to sympathize or, or identify with how it affected me when I got to it, um, how I was captured by the unity of Nehemiah chapter 3 without uniformity. The unity without uniformity is so powerful here. I'm going to read the entire section, and it's not easy always to listen to. There's a lot of names. It's on purpose. Um, I want you to listen as you're listening. I want you to listen for merchants and priests and families and sons and daughters professions that obviously fit with building a wall, and professions that quite clearly do not. All of them working together, some on more glamorous aspects, relatively, and some on very humble aspects of this project. But the entire project is very pragmatic. There's nowhere in this list that's an ego-boosting page. There's no part of this that you're like, oh, I'm, I want that section. Like There'd be none of that that would be there. Listen for a lot of smaller projects that are all working together for a bigger purpose. 
This is going to feel like, if you're, especially if you're a leader, you're going to hear this. It's going to feel like there's all these little pieces that could easily distract from the main purpose rather than to integrate into it. Uh, but listen instead to the pattern and the, the, the patterns that result in a wall. Listen for people investing in what's closest to their hearts. Or in one case, revealing their heart by refusing to invest. I want you to get a sense of, I was feeling all of this when we got to this passage, when these young men and I got to this, younger men got to this. I keep saying that because they're, they're only young by comparison to me now. They're, they're not that young. Um, but listen to these passages. All right. So here we go. Ready? Nehemiah, starting in chapter 2, verse 20, and moving on. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur the sons of Imri built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars, and next to them Merimoth the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz repaired. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, the son of Meshezabel, repaired. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Jehoiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gates, the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite and Jadon the Maronathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel the son of Hariah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them Rephiah the son of Hur, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jedaiah, the son of Harumaf, repaired um, opposite his house. Next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashinabina, repaired. Melkajah, the son of Haram, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of wall as far as the dung gate. Melkajah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakerim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol Hose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's gardens, as far as the stairs go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth-zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Benai, Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Yeshua, Yeshua, ruler of Mizpah, 
repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabbai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hekaz, repaired another section of the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After him, Azariah, the son of Maasai, the son of Ananiah, the, the repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hinadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Pelal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower protecting from the upper house of the king to the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Perosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projected tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great uh, projecting tower as follows the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emir, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zaleph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite its chamber. After him, Melkajah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. That's a lot to listen to. There's so much more. There is so much that can be unpacked in this. Part of why I wanted to read it is because I suspect that most of us, when we read Nehemiah, we just kind of skim Nehemiah chapter three, because it's just a whole bunch of names that we can't pronounce. And so we just, we just kind of skip over it like this is, and I would love to unpack in detail, and maybe we'll get to do a little more of that later. But what I want you to get the sense of is what that passage is going to mean as all these thoughts that I'm about to unpack, the thoughts for you, and you realize that passage strikes. God brings it to life to me in a new way in the middle of what we're thinking. So now let me go back and tell the story. Let's start with, we could start uh, way back. We could start um, all the way back to the founding of the church or the planting of the church or any of those, those type of things. But instead, I want to go back because we're talking about this, this project. I want to go back to our master plan. Now, for those of you who don't know, let's get the master plan up there. For those of you who don't know, a master plan is, is kind of a prayer, prayed out, educated guess, um, consideration, even vision, if you dare, um, of what we might do in the future. Now, it's already been changed once or twice in this church's uh, lifetime. And so this is not gospel. You can't find this in the book of John anywhere. Uh, this is just human beings putting together thoughts on what we think would be the best way um, to go forward with this church if, if it's a good idea to build and grow it all. I mean, we put that in God's hands. But just so you'll get a, a basic idea of what this looks like, so this is the big green area that's right out that door, right through those, right, if you were to be able to see through that wall, that's that big green area. This is the building that it is now. This is where right here in this building, right there, and where it says fellowship. And so then we have the, what we call the, the preschool building now, right there, those were there and the student ministry building up there on the top of the hill. Okay, So that's what we had when this was being done. We were looking at starting the project, Do we? this is what we developed in preparation for what we now call the grade school building, the city on a hill campaign, which is what it was. Um, that's the idea. This was created to, to play for that. By the way, side note, we're going to have two um, information meetings and question and answer meetings at the end of February, February 19th and February 26th. 
You are welcome to send questions at any point about all of this, but what I would love to encourage you to do is to, as, we're, as I'm teaching through this stuff and talking about this stuff, write them down and bring them to those meetings, because you're probably not the only one that has them. Um, other people are going to as well, and so just, just be thinking along those terms. This, this, is, this is tougher for me. I would much rather, like, like the pulpit, the, the being the lead pastor, or lead, the lead teaching pastor of a church, um, primarily is about teaching very often when it comes to what you see. It's about teaching through things and taking a passage. And Lord willing, we'll be back there in March when we jump back into 1 Samuel um, chapters 8 and 9 and begin to unpack those again. And I, I love that and much prefer that. Um, however, there's also a sense of what Sunday morning is kind of Thanksgiving dinner. Um, the whole family kind of comes together at the same time, and we're all in the same place kind of at the same time. And so certain conversations need to happen here as well. And so integrating the teaching with kind of what's going on in the church seems wise to me. So that's what we're doing today. Um, so here you go. The current property, this, this is the building up here. Now you'll notice way back in 2016, 2017, we already knew that, that this was going to need an addition. We knew that was going to happen. We knew student ministry was going to need some more space. Even when it was designed then, that's that yellow, little yellow thing there. Turns out that's not exactly the way it's going to be built, um, Lord willing, but, but we knew that was going to be the, the idea. One idea down the road is that someday if we build all of these things around that green space and we build all these big buildings, a big, a big uh, great room and, and, some, and preschool and, and adult education and stuff, that all of this down here could become youth ministry space, student ministry space. All of the stuff that we're in now could be a giant student ministry space. That's one idea. But we knew even if we were going to do that, this would be needed to get us there. Um, you're going to see a video here in a minute that's going to explain uh, a little bit of that as well. But that's, that's the idea. Um, so when we look at this, oh, by the way, also you'll notice um, this little blue, uh, little light blue building up there that was a phase for this grade school building um, that's up the hill where our children, a lot of our children are right now. Also, what you can't see from this picture is that that building was originally designed to be three stories tall. That's two stories now. So I want you to imagine as big as that building is and as dominant as it is on our property, imagine if it had another 25 feet on it. People would be stopping in to stay at the hotel there, right? They would be thinking like, oh, there's a hotel. We could stay there. It, it, would, it would be massive. Um, it, and here's the thing. It would mean the idea was that adult education would be on the third floor and there would be office space for the staff on the third floor. Um, and that would be the idea. For several reasons, that was cut. One, it, it would have looked like a giant hotel. That's one. Two, generally speaking, you don't want um, your office space on the third floor above a bunch of children's ministry space. You also don't want your adult education in the same building or on the top floor of a bunch of children's ministry space. How many of you um, just came from a Sunday school class over there in that building? Okay, quite a few of you. Do any of your classes back up to the playground? Do you have to share a wall with the playground? Does that ever create an issue? <laughs> nah, it's not a problem, right? When about a million children go in there and apparently dynamite stuff. Um, that's what it sounds like they're doing. And so, so here's the deal. So from a, from a perspective of noise, chaos, and that kind of stuff, it's not great. But much more significant in this day and age is from a security perspective, it's really not great. That you have all this security stuff set up to protect your children's ministry building and to have points of, uh, of egress and exit and all that kind of stuff and, and, and all that. And then 
we're going to have all a whole bunch of random adults wandering through the building at the same time. That's not the, that's not the strategy. We now know that, and we, know, we now know it was a wise decision because the very thing we decided not to do right now, we're doing. We have adult education in that building, and we have a lot of our staff officing in there, and it turns out we were right. It's a bad idea. Um, we're still stuck with it for a little while longer, but, we, but it would have been a bad idea. So you're thinking, well, gosh, Kristen, what was the strategy for adult education and office space? Well, at the time, we had some buildings out here, these temporary pr- buildings that we had put out here. I'll come back to those in a minute. And those we thought would, ha- would tide us over until we came up with a new solution. We were wrong. Um, it, didn't, it didn't last that long, but there's a few things uh, that aren't our fault. The main one is COVID. We'll get there. All right, so uh, everybody gets to blame everything on COVID for at least another 10 years, right? Is that what I'm understanding we're allowed to do? Okay, so, um, so this is in, in 2018, we pulled together and we raised um, uh, $4.5 million, $3.5 million on the City on a Hill campaign, plus a million dollars that we already had in place. We put all that together and built um, the, remember the City on the Hill poster? Y'all remember it? That was such a fun poster. Uh, that was really cool. As we worked toward, we were inspired by Gideon to reach the 301 number of people giving. Um, it, it's a, how much people give is between them and God. The fact that people are invested and involved and giving is a, is a great community thing for us to be challenged by and to work toward. So that's part of the, that conversation. That was a great uh, campaign. It was a lot of fun. At the end, inspired by Gideon and God's ability to do amazing things with limited resources, in 14 months we built the grade school building, which is the one up on the hill that is now sitting there and that thousands of people go, have gone through just in, the, just in the last few years one way or another. In the meantime, um, from the cut from the third floor, we knew we had to have a short-term solution for education, everything. Here's what's wild. Um, you'll appreciate. We spent, uh, John and I spent uh, quite a while looking for a photos of the temporary buildings, the portable buildings that are out back. And all I can assume is we were all working assiduously to not take pictures of those buildings. I'm not kidding. Looking through all the pictures we could find, this is the best one we could find. That's it. So that's, that's them back there. Clearly that was not the purpose of this photo. John was like, oh, oh, here's one. That's even before we put the, um, the walkways and everything in for those. In the end, um, and once we got that building built, we were able to move adult education mostly into that building out of those because they were becoming unsafe. Um, they were really unsafe and humans should not have been in them. So, so we only officed in them for about another year, year and a half um, after they should have been condemned and... Uh, and then John Sturrock fell through. The, no, he didn't. That was just a, we, we thought he was going to every time he walked in the building, but um, he didn't. Um, so they served us in an interim role. I, I tease about them, but they really did serve us really well um, for about five or six years um, in an interim role here in our church, um, which was great. But eventually they did become unsafe in addition to being an eyesore, so we had to get rid of them. The completion allowed us to do that. Now, here's, here's the thing. That's where we are in that mindset, knowing on top of that, while all of that's happening, we're watching our student ministry numbers rise and get higher and higher. And they continue to rise. In fact, look at our numbers pre-COVID. Before COVID, here's student ministry numbers. So a couple of pieces of information for you to see there. So, so this is before, that's from 2018 until 2020. And a couple of things I want you to notice. So this is a running average. Once, once we have enough dates, we can start running an average through those numbers. But, but here's what's wild. That average is shockingly close to 120. 
which not coincidentally is about the number of students that fit easily in the chairs in that building. You'll see, in fact, every time the number climbs above that 120, so gray is 120. Every time it climbs out out of that 120, it goes back down. That's what you would expect to see if space was a limiting factor. So look at back then what the student ministry looked like. It was just a photo of a bunch of students back then. There you go. There's student ministry um, in that, back in that time. So our goal here at the church, one of the, our part of our identity is that we are um, equipping the next generation for the ministry, for what God calls them to. That's why we focus first on children's ministry, and we have. And from a space perspective, we're doing a great job on that. Um, we still need people to be serving. We still run out of teachers, leaders, and servants with children. We have so many young families and so many young children who are here, and we just need more. It takes, it takes close to 100 people a Sunday to really run our children's ministry the way we should. Um, and that's a lot of people. I mean, you can see that's a big percentage of all of us who would be present. Um, and of those who could serve, it's even a, a much larger percentage. So we love to have people involved, invested, and engaged. If, that's, if you're not anywhere or in children's ministry, we'd love to talk with you about it. Now, um, so we always want to get involved in what God is doing. And it sure looks like, faithfully, God is providing a whole bunch of students um, for us to be raising and, and discipling and tending to. So with that in mind, um, we've thought about some different answers, and I, I'm not going to go much into detail here. I could spend a lot of time here, but I, won't do, I don't want to. Is that one idea is that we divide student ministry across the two hours. That we have student ministry either both hours, the same exact thing both hours like we do with children's ministry, or we divide them middle school, high school. Which, by the way, if we just, divide, if we just duplicated both hours, really likely what we would get is that they would self organize into a pretty much a middle school, high school hours anyway, um, because that's how, that's how students work. And so, um, but something we would have to really watch for is that that would, that would become potentially imbalanced or, or too unhealthy uh, situation. No. So there's a problem with that. The idea of doing that would mean that that flies in the face of one of our philosophical views, which is that the, the primary um, faith leaders in a fa in, in a, for children are their family, not the church. Um, we've continued to resist that philosophically. We mention this each time we have a family dedication, like we did last week with a devoted Sunday. Um, the primary faith training is the responsibility of the family, grandparents, uh, uncles, aunts, and of course parents. Um, of course, Lord willing, we find many spiritual parents in the church. Um, many of us need those, and many of us, many people in the church don't have great examples of parents and their bio parents or adopted parents or whatever. And we need more and more of those. We all need many um, spiritual parents. However, even though we live in a broken world where that's needed, we're convinced plan A is for parents to be the primary equippers of their kids. Listen to the passage we reference over and over again from Deuteronomy chapter six. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God. By the way, and notice, he's not going to jump into, because this is how children's ministry is going to do this for you. You and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. So one, the parents have to practice it, show it. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. Immediately after this key passage, arguably, according to Jewish thought, the most important passage there is in the Hebrew Scripture, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you will talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be like frontlets between your eyes, and you'll write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The home is the first place, is the primary foundation for spiritual growth and for the teachings of Scripture. That's first. Dividing students up in almost any way is almost certainly going to create a situation where the child has to decide between being involved with their friends in student ministry and the parents having to decide whether to worship with their family. In my case, for example, if we had middle school and high school, I have both in my family. I could, I could be in here with, either, with, with one of them, but not both of them. And that's a common thing in our church. There's a lot of families like that. And so we continue to resist that mode um, if we can help it. Plus, as you're going to see, if we're able to make this structure change, there's a really good possibility that the first hour on Sunday, the student ministry still maintains its role as a student hub. And the second hour, it could easily become a young adult hub. Um, and that the second hour becomes um, young professionals, it becomes newly uh, married, and uh, kind of like, uh, or, or newly married with children, or honeymooners, like those, it becomes a hub for that, and you'll see part of how we want to create that uh, moving forward. All right, so we knew something had to change, but before, as we're just starting the conversation as to what's going to have to change, I mean, we're just starting to gather data, we're starting to do all that kind of stuff, something happens, and it is, of course, COVID. So here's what the numbers look like with that. Now, how wild to see a church demographic that involves months of nothing. Now, you may be asking, like, well, what are these zeros? Like, these are a bunch of little zeros. You'll remember Easter and Christmas, we often as a church don't have uh, Sunday morning life groups. We don't have Sunday school for children or youth or whatever because we have low enough uh, numbers of people who are members ready to serve that we instead just tell people, listen, instead of having to serve, we're just all going to meet together and worship together and not serve in those roles. And so you sure, those, that's what those zeros, there's nothing special about those zeros. That's what that is. They just, we don't have student ministry some four, four days a year. Um, but notice that, but notice again, after COVID, it did not take long for the students to come back and to even get above that 120 number and then to fall off that 120 number. And then to get above it and fall off and get above it and fall off and get above it and fall off. Again, I think this indicates that that 120 number is a limiting factor in that building. And that there may be, who knows what our student ministry numbers would be if not for that. And by the way, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but a lot of you are here because your students started coming here. And so again, that, that affects every other number in the whole church as student ministry numbers do. Like here's, some, here's a current picture there you go. John's a little older. The students aren't. They're the same age. Um, but John's a little older. But it's the same number of students, isn't it? Here's one of the Sunday school classes on Sunday morning gathering. And that's our biggest Sunday school class. Uh, I mean, our biggest room for Sunday school meeting. So here's what you're dealing with is once again, we're at a place where the student ministry space is legitimately full. 
So I've been working through these Nehemiah passages as well while we've been wrestling now for, at this point, like two years we've been wrestling over student ministry numbers. We decided to cut adult space and decided to cut uh, uh, office space out of that building. And so we thought we could live with it with just these, and now those are gone. And all of these things are on my mind. Um, Adult education space, especially when children take over the rest of that building, which they will do, they always have. Um, So here's some of the patterns. The office space, the four-year areas, I'll comment on. Like this church, the four-year, is perfect for a church that has about 250 to 300 people showing up on Sunday morning. Um, We don't have that anymore. We now have uh, about 1,000 people that show up on Sunday morning, and this four-year becomes crazy um, on Sunday morning sometimes. Um, The green space outside, what are we going to do with that? Student ministry space. And I was feeling like, um, I don't know if this is true or not, but you probably heard this in a sermon, that the reason they use a stool when they're training lions, it's because the lion can't decide which leg to swipe it, so it just gets overwhelmed and doesn't do anything. Maybe that's right. I certainly felt that way with all these different various different issues, various different stories. They're very different from one another. They're not similar solutions, all that kind of stuff. Um, How do we start uncovering some of these principles? Okay, so here's some of the ones that began to jump out at me as we were studying Nehemiah. Um, So here's the beginning. The words, so Nehemiah chapter 1. So remember, all those things are on my brain as I start studying this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Helkaliah. Uh, or Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. All right, so let's just stop one there for a second. Remind you who Nehemiah is. Um, the, the, the leaders of Persia, the, the Xerxes, the emperor of Persia, who essentially ran the whole world at that time with very few um, exceptions. Um, they were now that they had now inherited all these Jews that the Babylonians had taken into exile. So the Babylonians had taken the Jews out of Israel into exile, and now Xerxes and the Persians had taken over, and, and all this stuff was going on. But what had happened was uh, uh, some of the exiles had now started to be sent back. Some had survived, had escaped, and had already always lived in Israel, and others had started to be sent back. And Nehemiah, who works directly under Xerxes, he's right there, he's his cupbearer. He gets to hear, overhear the news. And the news is, or, or the, his brother comes to him and says, hey, you just need to hear, the people living in Jerusalem aren't safe. The city is still dilapidated. Not only are they not safe, they're there, but they're living like homeless vagabonds. They have no city. They have no homes. They have no temple. They have no palace. They have no nothing. And they're not fixing it. And so what happens in the midst of that is, is you see Nehemiah hears this from Susa, the capital, and uh, of, of Persia a long way away. And they said to me, the remnant there, verse 3, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed with fire. Well, Nehemiah prays. Something we emphasized last week, he prays and he prays. That's what we talked about last week. If you, again, as I said, if you've not seen the, the not here for last week, you want to get, get that, see that, be a part of that. Now, there are a bunch of prayers. This is a man who prayed. He's a manly man, and, and he prays. Those are not a problem. He sees, he sees prayer as partnership with God and what God is calling Nehemiah to do. It's one of the coolest things about Nehemiah. He sees no competition. Well, do I act or do I pray? And Nehemiah's like, why would I choose? I'm going to act and pray. Over and over again, you see it. Chapter 2, verse 11, what we see is Nehemiah start doing the thing where he starts gathering together people around him, a smaller group to begin having a conversation to people to guide him, to hold him accountable, to pray with him. It's Nehemiah 2.11. So I went to Jerusalem, 
and was there three days. I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do in Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon gate, and the dung gate. I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates had been destroyed by fire. He begins to talk to other about the issue. And like I said, what we had already begun doing at the leadership board level, we were having these conversations. At the staff level, we were certainly having these conversations. We had put together a team, a next kind of a next steps team to start having those conversations. Our, our church requires us to have meetings like this every few years anyway. And so we're having these conversations. What's coming next? What's going on? COVID hits. We, we, we have to pull back. We regather. We start having these conversations again as we see these things are still coming. Um, and you'll see, by the way, we're, we've been having over the last couple of weeks dinners with many of the teachers um, so that they have the right information, teachers and leaders in the church, so that they have the right information about stuff. Um, and now we're bringing it to Thanksgiving dinner for everybody to be a part of it. And we'll have informational meetings that will be purely information, places for question and answer, on the, like I said, on the 19th and 26th at 4 p.m. We have a special website that we'll, you'll see in a minute. So just to wrap up real quick... We have a couple of very rough draft renderings that have come in for a student ministry building. Don't write questions based on these because they're not correct, but they are very rough and give you a picture of kind of what we're thinking. And so this is going out the back of the student ministry building um, towards the woods would be a, a walkway and then a stand, a building there that has a meeting space, a small, smaller group space on the bottom floor and on the top floor, a large meeting area for the students. Um, because that's, they need a, a better structured, larger meeting area, so we can put more students in it. And then the next picture gives you a very basic concept. So there's that new addition. But notice that what that allows us to do up here at the current spot, the glassed-in area up in the front, is that this can become um, uh, some meeting spaces over at one end, and then a coffee shop uh, in the rest of that room, which programmatically would be great for women's ministry and 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 college ministry and uh, well, every ministry in the church, men's ministry. But it, and it might even be something that we could then offer to the community even, is a coffee shop like that. So that's the idea of that sec of both services. It could be utilized really well, both services, and, and it's pretty exciting. Um, so this is one of the three large sections of this project. It's a student ministry. And it feels like I'm stopping now halfway through. It's because I'm stopping halfway through. That's why. Um, next week, we're going to have a whole bunch of students here um, because next week is D-Now weekend. It'll be a great reminder for us as we celebrate dozens of students coming to experience the gospel and discipleship through that weekend. Um, after that week, the week after that, I'll go into the detail, continue the story, discuss the foyer and what the needs are um, in regards to changing that, discuss the adult ministry space and office solutions um, that we're looking at. In the meantime, over this next month, we're going to be encouraging you to really be praying about what your involvement is, to be asking God to lead you in that. Um, I don't know what, how God is going to lead you. That's not my job. I'm not capable. Of that. That's truly 100% between you and God. My hope is that every family member of this church will be involved in some way that we will be able to pledge to pray, pledge to give, um, whatever it is. Our goal, is, once again, as has been the case for years since we've been in existence, is that we would get this done without long-term debt. Um, and so that's, that's what we're asking for everyone to, to figure out. What is it that God is calling me to do to be a part of it? We have a special website that's created. Um, that's here, um, that will have videos, all kinds of stuff. You can make your pledge up in the top corner um, with what's going on there. It has discussion of like office space stuff, all kinds of stuff, and more things will be. 
We have a prayer walk, several prayer walks on the campus. If you want to come up here during your lunch hour and, and walk and pray for God's guidance for us as a church um, through this, um, we'd love for you to do that as well. Next week, in addition to prayer, to pledging on the website, which would be our first choice. Did we get that QR code in in time? I don't know if we got the QR code in. in oh, we did. You should be able to, put, to pull up your phone right now. And use your little camera, and it'll take you there, and then you can go look at it later. Let's, let's, if, it, if it works, somebody like, can be like, yes, it works. That would be awesome. For, it worked. Good. Excellent. So everybody can do that. Great. And then you can go look at that page later. Look at, figure out what it is. Um, really pray and ask God to lead you in this. We don't, we don't want our wisdom. We don't want our best thoughts. We don't want any of that. We want God to guide us in this, um, and that would be the case. It is cool to note that in a project that's probably going to cost between 6 and $7 million dollars, and we're starting once again with a million plus dollars in place um, because of the generosity of people who have been giving the entire time all the way through. Um, and so we're, we're getting to start in a good place. That's why on the website it said we were already 17% there. That's why. Um, so it's a, it's a gracious thing from people in the church. Now, if you will stand with me, this is one of the weirdest parts of not just teaching straight through a scripture. So here's what I want you to hear. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ then I want you to think only about the passages that we looked at. I don't want you to worry about the capital campaign. Don't you worry about giving or praying. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've never, if you've never accepted the free gift of his salvation, here's what I want you to hear. All of this is just a picture. All these buildings go away someday. All, uh, just like baptism and other things, they're a picture of a physical reality, of a physical um, picture of a spiritual reality. The soul truly is it's like it's dead and buried and resurrected, and we see that in baptism. Christ offers us unity with Him. That unity with Him is then lived out in a church setting as we are unified to accomplish things, no matter what it is, to accomplish missions and to accomplish supporting other churches and ministries, supporting, other, and supporting one another and things like capital campaigns. That's what it's about. So that's, that's the whole picture. If you don't know Jesus, don't worry about that, the rest of that stuff. You need to get to know Jesus, and we'd love to talk that through with you. If you do and you're a member, our, our hope is that you're especially, you're praying to see what does God have in mind for us, for my family with this. I want us to all be a part of it in some way. If you are not a member and, and you've already been through our Welcome Home Team process and you've talked to Lance and others and you're ready to come join our dysfunctional family, we're doing our best, but that's us. Um, we'd love for you to come forward this morning as well, and uh, then you can join and then get more involved. We'd love for that as well. So um, uh, the unity with Christ is this beautiful picture. Asking God, how, does, how do we pull this off together? Well, what does He want us to do? That's the goal. And we'll, we'll continue to talk about it over the rest of these next few weeks, and uh, we're glad that you're here. So with that in mind, I hope you're prepared to pray as we sing together.